Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And it's been a while since I've had a chance to say this, but in this <laughs> podcast, we choose a saga, explore its themes and story, and judge the actions of its characters at the Saga Thing. Yeah, it's it's been a tick, hasn't it? Well, we spent the month of April on our binge reading of Four Thouter in four weeks. That was pretty impressive. And then we took a, so. a, a month off. But before all of that, that was the year of Ale Saga. You remember that? Yeah, I'm still not fully recovered. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to believe we're not talking about Ale now. Oh, tell me about it. I'm thinking of teaching it again. <laughs> oh, Lord. No, I don't, think, uh, I don't think we'll ever really be done with Ale. He's like a bad burrito, that one. He's... Always there. (laughs) It's a distressing analogy. I think Uh, he'd like it. So we're here to begin our exploration of the Saga of Horth, uh, also known as Harther Saga Grimkelsoner, the Saga of Horth Grimkelson, and also known as Harther Saga Ophomverga, the Saga of Horth and the Home Dwellers. And Andy, we put this one off for far too long. Well, I mean, we've been busy. No, I, I mean, yes, we, we have been, yes. But no, I mean that this is the third and final member of the so-called Outlaw Trilogy. Yes. These are the three sagas of Icelanders that are almost entirely concerned with the fortunes of an outlaw. And we covered the first two quite some time ago. Yeah, so the three sagas in this grouping are Gisla Saga, Grete Saga, and the Saga of Horth. Yeah, and one of these things is not like the others. Well, all three of them are more different than they are alike, if you really want mm-hmm. to get into it. Uh, so I suppose all of these things are not like the others. Yeah, well, but Horth's also not generally put in the same class as Gisli and Gretter in terms of quality. See, that's more a matter of opinion. I okay, but like I mean it's a one. pretty it's a pretty widely held opinion. Well, people um, are picky. So, for example, uh, Stefan Einerson compares Harther Saga to Gretter, but only to make the point that it's a mix of old and new writing forms, and quote not so good as Gretter. Mm-hmm. Although he is willing to concede that some of the characters are interesting. Well, that's not a compliment. <laughs> On the other hand, our old friend Jonas Christiansen, who's usually pretty dour about a lot of the sagas, is actually something of a fan. He uh-huh. says, the saga's theme has a certain grandeur. And oh. elements in the saga put it on par with the fantastical sagas of the 14th century, which is actually I, quite accurate. Yeah, but on a par with other sagas is hardly thunderous praise. Well, and I looked up Christensen too, Andy. He also says that, quote, the author does not concentrate on the central themes. His structure is shaky. (laughs) His descriptions are full of exaggeration. We don't know much about the earlier forms of the saga, but the mishmash we have does not suggest we have lost much of a masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) The mishmash. So. (laughs) Okay, I was going to get to that part. And Uh I did say it was complimentary for Christensen. Yeah. No, the overall opinion is really divided between those who think this saga is a pretty poor specimen of a family or outlaw saga and those who think there's something interesting about the way it straddles various genre lines. But all of that is really appropriate for a post-classical saga. And I think that's one of the things one has to be aware of when reading this one is that it it is a 14th century traditionally post-classical saga and it Mm -hmm. fits into that genre pretty well, I think. Right. And I think we'll see throughout that it's very aware of the genre conventions. Yeah. Uh, in a way that other sagas that are laying down those conventions uh, aren't quite as self-conscious about. Exactly. But we'll have to return to that when we evaluate the saga as a whole. Absolutely. And I think that's Uh, probably what I'll be talking about. Sure. Uh, Now, there's a similar variety of opinion dividing scholars who are more neutral about the saga, but aren't sure what to do with Horth, our protagonist. That's fair. Uh, Ruth Mazokaris calls him 
generally a violent and difficult man, but Anthony Fox calls him a heroic and high-minded figure mm-hmm. who is led into misdeeds and outlawry by the folly and malice of friends and associates who are his moral inferiors. Well, I mean, I, I don't think we'll get to his outlawry in this episode, but when we no. get there, it, it's, a, it's a controversial moment. <laughs> sure, it is. Because I, I got to say, I spend the whole, this whole first episode, I think everyone's going to like Horth very much. Do you? Yeah, I think so. Okay. But I ne- don't. next episode, <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a problem. Yeah. Because Horth is a vicious but morally upright person who's rather difficult to get along with, but heroic and violent and tragic and misguided. Pretty much. That sums it up, right? <laughs> so he's a saga hero then. Yeah, that about covers it. Fits uh, it perfectly. People- yeah, but people can't seem to make up their mind about this one. There's there's even some debate about how far this saga crosses the line between history and fantasy. Well, okay, but that's a pretty badly smudged line in almost any saga. Oh, and this one's trampling all over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fox covers this point pretty well. Horth lived and was outlawed in the second half of the 10th century, and the main outline of events, and it is probably true. But the saga of Horth is probably the least historical of the outlaw sagas, and is perhaps among the least historical of the Icelandic sagas as a whole. So we're into the realm of fantasy here. Yeah. But not entirely. Mm-hmm. And maybe not the kind of reader of the sagas might expect. It's worth emphasizing that part about the main outline being most likely true. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think that's true of most sagas. I think the main yeah. outline is generally true and there's a lot of gaps that are filled in. Often, yeah. But there are references to a few of the figures in this saga in some of the earliest writing we have about Iceland. Oh, yeah. No, Horth is mentioned in Lanama book as the chieftain of the home dwellers and another man from this saga, uh, Horth's uncle Torfi, who we'll be meeting in this episode, yeah. is cited as one of the men who did the most to fight the threat of the home dwellers. Uh, so spoilers, I guess. Oh, you with the spoilers. <laughs> now, now let's course correct a little bit here. This is mostly a created saga. Mm-hmm. The poetry, for example, has been pretty thoroughly shown to be a 14th century addition to the story, but that's true of Gisli's saga as well. Certainly. And uh, not that it's 14th century, but it, that it was created by the author. Um, and there's a pretty standard set of paranormal and supernatural events, but... Right. But dream visions, battling undead forces, premonitions, the usual. Yeah, it's not unusual uh, for any saga. Right. Now, Theodore M. Anderson classes the saga along with Erbija, uh, Lakstala saga, and Greta's saga for the quantity of magic and sorcerous elements in the narrative. Right. And there's some bits and pieces of folklore and mythology in here as well. So is that what Falks is responding to? I think I think not exactly. Uh, part of what makes the saga of Horth different is the scope of the story. Gisli and Gretter were about, I mean, they were about Gisli and Gretter. Gisli, even as an outlaw, was a man at the center of a complex web of relationships especially those with his brother, his brother-in-law, and his wife. Mm -hmm. And Gretter was a loner, a man whose isolation was nearly complete for many of the years he spent as a hunted man. Horth is different. Yeah, Horth is a, he's a different kind of guy. And as we'll see, this is the story of an outlaw who builds a community of outlaws. Mm -hmm. This saga has that second name, the saga of the home dwellers, something that it's actually called in one of the manuscripts. Right. And a home is a small island, and Horth is going to populate that island with the criminals of his region and forge them into a functioning community. Yeah, and the presence of that community, as you might expect, warps the entire region. It sure does. And we're at some point, we're going to have to talk about the outlaw tradition and the idea of the Greenwood and how this is very different 
from that traditional oh, yes. notion of the outlaw in the green wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole idea of forming a community as an outlaw is not supposed to be possible. Grettir showed us the danger of outlaws trying to work together since there was that expectation of reward to catching a known outlaw. Sure, yeah, yeah. And other outlaws could, in theory, even seek a sort of forgiveness for their own outlawry by hunting down other outlaws. Yeah, exculpation, right? It's called exculpation. And it's essentially, it's it's not like a pardon. It's more an amnesty for wrongdoers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you said, it's entirely theoretical. What we know is that the system did everything it could to keep outlaws from trusting each other. Yeah, and we do get other examples of this kind of band of outlaw setup. Remember at the end of Erbeke Saga, there's a large gang of criminals who begin terrorizing the area under the command of Ospak, the outlaw. Yeah, yeah. We saw something thematically similar in Ref the Sly. Ref set himself and some others up with that bizarre steampunk fort that had the fire suppression system in the walls. Oh, I loved it. Uh, now, they weren't outlaws, but they definitely weren't popular locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, no, generally the outlaw isn't supposed to have a big social circle. But Horth definitely does. He's he's quite the man about town, and he builds up a pretty remarkable life as an outlaw leader. Yeah, he does. It's almost like there's something wrong with a system that would create an outlaw like Horth and then give him free reign over the region. <laughs> almost. <laughs> uh, now, what we have here is a saga that's trying to be social commentary and revenge story, and maybe spiritual awakening, and mm. epic saga all at once and all along its length. Yeah. Now, it doesn't actually do some of those things entirely successfully, but I suppose we'll get to that later on. What it does really successfully is create the idea of a parallel state, though. Mm-hmm. A small but well-organized group of people living outside the law and living off the work of others. And in that way, it reminds me a lot of some Westerns. Oh, yeah, yeah. The ones with, like, organized robber bands. Yeah. Like a lot of the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, someone like El Guapo, for instance. That's not a spaghetti western. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, not the... I'm thinking of, like, Tombstone. It's built on the same Mm -hmm. premise, and as I just, you know, Three Amigos, it's making fun of this storyline before that. Right, but I don't want to overpromise here. This is not a western. It's not that kind of story. Well, not in this first episode, at least. Speaking of which, uh, shall we mosey on into our story, John? Yeah, get along, little doggy. Uh, but uh, before you get, uh, we do have the small matter of a Hromkel measurement to calculate. Of course, yes. Uh, let's do it. Uh, I mean, it's been a long time since the beginning of Ale's saga, but uh, we're still doing that. Yeah. So our Hromkel measurement is the length of the saga in terms of Hromkels, the length of the first saga covered on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So what's your best guess on the length of this one, Andy? I'm going to guess that this one is about, I'm going to go 3.2. Because it's it's a, it's not a long saga, but it's not a short one either. And this is interesting to me because usually you are pretty dead on, but there's something about this saga that fooled you. What? Because this saga is two point zero eight Ravenkels. Two point zero. Well, I mean, I wasn't that far off, John. You were off by more than a Ravenkel, which I don't think you've ever been that far off before. So something about this saga felt long to you. No, I was just thinking maybe maybe I forgot what a Ravenkel is. Maybe that's it. <laughs> because I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading this one. There you go. All right. Now, I think we've managed to waste a remarkable amount of time here. Uh, are we ready to get started? <laughs> yes. Uh, like Horth, I'm I'm ready to be led astray and brought low by my moral inferior. Hmm. Lead the way. Hmm. Somehow I feel like that was an insult. <laughs> You're not a nice person, John. Part one. The marrying kind. 
Okay, so it's been a little while since we've started a new saga, and we should probably ease people in. Just, you know, let them get their sea legs. Yeah, well, this saga introduces 31 people in less than 600 words. How's that? Okay, so much for easing. (laughs) No, we need to face facts here, John. This is one of those sagas that just fire hoses names at you right at the start, and (laughs) it actually keeps introducing people for most of its length. A cast of thousands and all that. It's it's incredible. Calm down. We can manage this. As usual, there are a bunch of these people who are only tangentially related to the main story, so we can skip a few and save some for when they become important. Mm -hmm. There's really only a few families that are of any significance here. Okay, yes. So uh, how how do we want to deal with them? Where do you want to start? Well, I think we take the main one, Grimkel's family, for now Uh and deal with the rest as they come. That makes good sense to me. Um, Well, this neighborhood only exists as of the settler generation. Mm -hmm. And once again, we've got a saga that takes its starting point from Harold Fairhair's consolidation of Norway. But unlike our last saga, Ale Saga, where we saw a more neutral approach to describing Harold's rise, this saga has a a definite point of view. (laughs) It's not a fan. No, it is not. It's almost as if Iceland has been through something. Yep. (laughs) Now, we're told... Most of Iceland was settled in the days of Harold Fairhair. People would not endure his oppression and tyranny. <laughs> they would rather leave their properties in Norway than suffer aggression and injustice. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much all it has to say on the subject. Uh, where Ale Saga spent over a dozen chapters setting up Harold's reign, you've just quoted the entire thing from this story. Yeah, and the point of these lines was to transition us into that description of the neighborhood that we're interested in. Ah, well, you open a door like that, I'm walking through. All right, uh, this is a neighborhood with a lot of complicated marriages, which is really where most of the names come in. The central set of people are built from the household of Grimkel the Gothi. Uh, Grimkel has three marriages in his life, and for our purposes, yeah. his second marriage is the most important one. Uh, so really, even though there's a blizzard of names, we can just focus on one couple and their family. Sure. That's a piece of cake. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where do you taste this cake? Uh, Grimkel is a powerful chieftain, but he has a reputation for being unjust and difficult. He lives at two farms near Ulfusvatn in the south of Iceland. Mm. See, this is a southern saga. Yep. Not too many of those around, John. I suppose. Uh, oh, and he's rich. Uh, Grimkel's rich. Uh, but these, uh, the point of these first chapters is to establish the unhappy marriage of Grimkel and his second wife, Signy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grimkel's already a widower. He has a daughter named Thurid from his first marriage. And his new wife, Signy, has, is a widow who has a son from her first marriage. Oh, boy. Uh, and a foster son. And it'll make it slightly easier if I tell you that both of these boys are named Grim. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> Everybody's named Grim. Are these two in disguise or something? No, 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 no. They're both legitimately named Grim. Uh, the foster son is named Grim the Short, if that helps. That seems unnecessary. And they also don't really call him Grim the Short going forward. I know, I know. They just call him Grim. It's very <laughs> frustrating. Right. And arbitrary. Uh, and, you know, and you could also call the other one Grim the Tall just to right. distinguish. Well, he might not be tall is why. Mm. I mean, you can't have Grim the Short and his friend Grim the Average Height. <laughs> but we shouldn't get hung up on the Grims, Andy. They're, we're just getting started here. Yeah, right, right. Carry on. Now, as I said, this second marriage is not a happy one. The problem is that Grimkel and Signy's father, Valbrand, meet at the All Thing, and they get to talking, and they end up making an arrangement for the marriage. 
but but, this is, yeah. but but neither Signy or her brother Torfi are at the all thing, and mm-hmm. so they're not consulted about the marriage. And consent is a very important thing. I think I see the problem here. Yeah, no, it's not great. We've talked about arranged marriages before, and they're a reality of the sagas, but yeah. they also often cause trouble in these stories. A number of sagas use badly arranged marriage as the beginning of the saga, and this is right. a great example of that. Right. And there are all these reasons for it. I mean, obviously, from a narrative view, it's a great way of starting conflict. And of course, it's also a mark of the pre-Christian past because the church was supposed to be against these marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't get us off track already. The point is that Signy and her brother Torvi both protest, but everything's already been arranged. Yeah. And I, I like the dry tone of the author here. It says, Signy learned of her marriage arrangements and was not impressed. <laughs> and then Torfi composes a verse on the subject. The old seeker of swords woundstorm gave the brooch bearer to Grimkel in marriage. Some such is what I heard. The simpleton took wealth, ease, joy from the goddess gem. I expect that the old one will be of small use to her. Okay, I'm starting to get the distinct impression that they are not members of the fan club. They're not Grimkel fans at all, no. no. Uh, it's it's a pretty potent mixture of contempt for Grimkel and outrage at their father's unilateral action in making the marriage arrangements. Which are valid points, uh, although since these sagas already established that Grimkel is both wealthy and powerful, their contempt seems a little overstated. Yeah. Uh, he might be unacceptable because Signy wasn't consulted about the match, but looking down on one of the clear power brokers of the south quarter of Iceland, I, I mean, I already said it, it seems a little over the top. Sure, yeah. And the objection seems to be in part because of Signy not having been asked, but also Grimkel's age. Signy's mm-hmm. a relatively young widow, but Grimkel is apparently a fair bit older. Uh, generously endowed with years, Andy. Uh, but as we said, everything's already in place, and so Signy goes along with things, more or less. Very much less, actually. <laughs> she transfers everything she owns to her brother so that it won't end up in Grimkel's control through the marriage. Mm-hmm. And the only thing she keeps are her favorite necklace and her favorite horse, Svartfaxi. Yeah, now, Svartfaxi means dark mane, for those wondering. Uh, so now that she's hidden her assets in the saga equivalent of an offshore account, it's mm-hmm. time for Signy to marry. So Signy, her horse, her foster son, Grim the Short, and a neighboring Gothi named uh, Cole Kellickson, I believe, That's uh, right. head off with 30 escorts to Grimkel's farm. But Signy's father, Valbrand, doesn't make the trip. He claims he's too old and infirm to go. And her brother Torvi just flat refuses to go. So we have to assume that's a deliberate insult to Grimkel, right? From oh, Torfi specifically. Torfi's is for sure. Uh, Valbrand might actually be old. I mean, he does have adult children, right? He's also raised an adult foster son named Sigurd, who will become important later in the story. Yeah, good way to slip that in. Another name yeah, for everyone. I'm a smoothie, I am. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, Grimkel's not real happy about his in-laws blowing off the wedding. And Signy's unhappy too, for a couple of reasons. There have been a couple of good reasons for her to be unhappy, but she's also had a terrible omen about the marriage. Not everyone who set out from Valbrand's farm makes it to the wedding feast. Yeah, you're talking about this horse, right? Yeah, of course I'm talking about the horse. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the horse wasn't invited to the feast. All right, that's fair. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, Smart Foxy the horse wandered off during the trip while the party was resting in Rekidal. Uh Grim the Short then tracks him down by following tracks in the morning dew. 
and he eventually found Svartfaxi dead in an eroded gully. And when she learns of her favorite horse's death, Sikni says, that is an uncanny evil from which no good will come. And she actually tries to turn around and go home at that point, but Cole the Gothi won't allow it. And yep. so she's forced to go on. Yep. But hey, John. Yeah. So what exactly happened to Svartfaxi anyway? Well, he died. Uh-huh. I mean, we, don't, we don't really get an explanation as to how, although at the bottom of the gully suggests that he fell and died from injuries. Suggests. Suggests that uh, you're not so sure about that. <laughs> well, I'm not I mean, so sure either. Are you asking if it's actually a bad omen? Like, are there supernatural forces involved? Because I think the doors just left open enough to that possibility, but there's there's really nothing there to work with. Uh, I mean, mm. Certainly, it does nothing to improve Signe's mood as she enters into this marriage, but that could be from dread of an omen, or it could just be because she really loved that horse. Well, I mean, at least she still has the necklace, right? <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> for now, everyone says I do at the appropriate moments. The wedding ceremony and feast go well. And then everyone clears out and leaves Grimkill and Signy to deal with one another. Well, except they're not totally alone. Mm-hmm. You see Grim the Short, Signy's foster son, he stays on with them. And that's actually a good thing because the newlyweds really don't get along that well. But they both get along with Grim. Right. So what's the opposite of a third wheel? Like, what's the, <laughs> what's the nece- I suppose they're a tricycle. He's the necessary wheel. Yeah. Uh, but he this is a little bit go. awkward for him. He ends up serving as a kind of mediator for them because they can tolerate one another while Grimm's there to keep them both happy. But only when he's around. Yeah. And that's a problem because Grimm has other plans for life than sitting around Olfusvaden and making awkward small talk with a married couple that are barely speaking to each other. Yeah, when you put it like that, it doesn't sound great. It really doesn't. It, it isn't. It's not. <laughs> and and so the following spring, Grimm announces his intention to leave. He actually does that several times. Right. Three years in a row, in fact. The first time, he flat out tells Signy that being the relationship go-between for her marriage is too difficult and he needs to leave. Mm-hmm. And then she and Grimkel both agree that they really don't want to do without Grimm around. So <laughs> they give him a much better compensation and perks around the farm. Like keys to the executive washroom, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, the saga doesn't say, but perks, uh-huh. nice stuff. Nice stuff. So Grimm stays on for another year, but then the next spring, he again says that it's time for him to go. And when Grimkel once again argues against it, Grimm says, All right, then uh, go and ask for the hand of Guthrith Holgnadotter for me, if you want me to stay here. <laughs> oh, okay, so yeah, we have to go back to one of these families now. Yeah. Uh, Guthrith is the daughter of Hogni and Thorbjörg, and they live nearby. Yeah. Uh, on her mother's side, Gudrid's from an important family, and Grimm's, well, Grimm. As Grimkill says, you're getting pretty uppity now, aren't you? There's a great <laughs> difference in rank between you. And Grimkill the Short says, you could arrange it, though. I can try. And he does, in fact. Uh-huh. He has to argue with Gudrith's father a bit, but eventually the match is agreed upon, and Grimm and Gudrith are married. Yeah, we're starting to get a sense of just how desperate Grimkill is not to be left alone with his new wife. Yeah. And how much she doesn't want to be around him at all. And that's juxtaposed with Grimm and Guthrie's marriage, which is also arranged, but which is a happy one. The two of them get along quite well together. Yeah, it's it's actually something of an echo of Guthrie's parents' marriage. I said a minute ago that Guthrie's mother's family was important. Her father also married above his station, and it worked out fine. Right. 
But understandably, the newlyweds aren't thrilled about living with a miserably unhappy older couple. <laughs> it's kind of cramping their style. Yeah, no, it's it's the plot to who's afraid of Icelandic Virginia Wolf. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a recipe for awkward conversations around the dinner table, at least. And probably a lot of sad drinking, I would guess. Wait, have you seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? Because this description is uncanny. <laughs> yes, yes, I have. I showed it to students once and I, I regretted it almost as much as when there I showed them 1984. And we got a lot of bush and and uh, full frontal. What? Awkward. <laughs> anyway, the point is that after a year, Grimm announces a third time his intention to move out. And rule of threes, John... This time he actually does get to move out. Uh But he moves not too far away, and Grimkill provides him with some starting furniture for his farm, which is very nice. That's nice. Uh, Incidentally, uh, Grim turns out to be an excellent farmer, and it's not long before he's considered one of the rising men of the district. So good for him. He's in great shape going forward. Of course, the farm he leaves behind just got a little more awkward. Yet, I have to say, this is a well-written bit of the saga. The the unhappiness of Grimkill and Signy's marriage isn't about, like, Big dramatic set pieces or vicious fights. Yeah, they they just don't much like each other. Yeah, but it's the, it's the, a, the whole thing's subtle, and it's handled very well. Yes, the piece about their not being able to make the same friends tells so much, mm-hmm. uh, and the resulting feeling isn't simmering tension waiting to boil over the way we saw with like Gunnar Hamundersen and Holgerth Longlegs and Yalsaga. Right. Yeah, that's it's, a good comparison. It's more of a slow deflation. The the two of them are just bad for each other and make each other kind of tired and sad. I actually think it's an arrestingly modern depiction of an unhappy marriage. Now, somewhere there's a film student finishing a senior project short study of this exact plot. <laughs> it's, it's in black and white, and it's set in the suburbs. Yeah, the suburbs of Olfusvatten. And there's a lot of smoking, preferably by windows as people right. stare out of them. And it's written by, what, Don DeLillo? Uh... <laughs> no, I don't think you need to go that far. Uh, yeah, no, uh, back to our story. Uh, so... What's going on at Ulfusvatten now that Signe and her husband are actually being forced to deal with each other? Part 2. The honeymoon's over. Well, as unhappy as Grimkel and Signe are together, they're still a married couple, and in this case, that's going to result in children. Yeah, but this marriage really is pretty strained, and that's showing up in odd ways. Uh, Before their first child is born, Signe has a dream. Uh, She sees a tree growing from their bed with huge roots and a strong trunk, but not many leaves. Ah, so now it's dream interpretation time. Yep. I know how much you like these little episodes. Audible sigh. Uh, Yeah, no, this is one of the few motifs of the sagas that just bug me. Uh, But I'm going to put up with it this time, actually, because the, the dream's so obvious I barely count it as needing interpretation. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the, the couple's going to have a child, and she's dreaming of a family tree. Well, it's not subtle, is what you're saying. Well, it's not. Now, the woman Signy goes to for help with her dream is her foster mother, a woman named Thordis. Mm-hmm. And Thordis gets a little creative with the interpreting. She decides the baby is going to be a boy, for reasons that she does not explain. And many people will think highly of him for his accomplishments, but his condition will not be the most flourishing, because the tree lacked the leaves you wanted for it, and it's not certain that he'll be much loved by most of his relatives. Well, I mean, some of that was a little arbitrary. Some of it? Oh, most of it, if you want. But, uh, <laughs> of course, Signy does give birth to a boy whose name is Horth. There should, in these family sagas, there should be some kind of fanfare when the main characters are introduced. Uh, this should. is 
the Horth of Horth Saga. Fanfare might be a bit much in Horth's case. He seems like a promising <laughs> lad, though, and he does, you know, in the tradition of gentlemen like this, mm-hmm. he's a little slow to walk. He doesn't actually manage to walk until he's three. Uh-huh. And when he finally does manage to take a few steps, he actually stumbles into his mother's lap and accidentally knocks the pendant from around her neck. Uh-oh. And that pendant shatters into pieces on the hard ground. Right. So this is the pendant that we mentioned earlier, the the torque, right? It's the favorite possession of Signy, other than her dead horse, Svartfaxi. <laughs> Always with that horse. Uh, <laughs> you make it sound so much worse than it was. The horse wasn't dead when she counted it as a great possession. I, no, yes, obviously. I don't think she's pining after it. Right. But it's, it's death, remember, she took as a bad omen for her marriage. And no. this seems to be another bad omen. And more to the point, it just really cheeses her off. Uh, she says to Little Horth, Your first walking around turned out badly, and many evil ones will follow it. See, that's, especially in this culture, that is not a recommended way of disciplining a toddler. Right. A toddler who's just walked for the first time, I remind yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Mommy Dearest follows with a verse. He broke before the woman the fine pendant of giant speech. I doubt that any man can ever compensate the lady. The young gold yearner's first walk went not well. Worse will be each one after, and the harshest will be last. Man. So, yeah, she's not thrilled. Um, How much does she know about this guy's future? I Well, the author's laying it on a little thick, but the, the narrative thrust is clear. right? The, the two things that Signy kept in her marriage have both been destroyed. And she's increasingly angry about her situation, trapped in this unhappy marriage. Well, things are not going to get much better. Uh-huh. Because Grimkel happens to overhear Signy's verse and responds with one of his own. The reacher for riches has possessed a poor mother. The woman's first child, new walking, has suffered from the hateful words a seafire seeker will feel. People censured lives longer than some peerless men. Yeah, now we have this couple exchanging dueling verses over the fate yeah. of their son. I mean, th- this really is turning into Who's Afraid of Ginger Wolf? <laughs> You're obsessed. <laughs> but this is an important moment in Horth's life. As Fox writes, Horth is a tragic figure, born into a hostile environment and doomed early in his life. And this is that doom, or at least part of it. Doom in the original sense of fated. Exactly, Yes. Signy has just pronounced her son's fate, and it's not a happy one. Mm-hmm. Each trip he goes on will be worse than the last, she says, and the last will be the worst. You can see why Grimkel's not happy about what she said. In fact, he's so angry that he decides to get Horth out of the house and away from her. And he sends Horth to be raised in the household of the only person he and Signy both trust. Right, and of course this would be Grim the Short. Of course. And Grim and his wife Guthrith have a son of their own who's named Ger, who is about Horth's age, and the two boys grow up as best friends and foster brothers. Right, they are best friends. Uh, Ger grows up to be a large man, skillful physically, and he's almost, but not quite, Horth's match. Especially in brains. Yeah, as we'll see later. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the two of them are essentially blood brothers, and Ger will be an important companion for Horth throughout his adult life. Now, meanwhile, back at Grimkel's farm, Signy has another dream. Oh, good. And it's a tree again. But where the other one had barely any leaves, this one is bursting with them. And Signy's foster mother, Thordis, prophecies from this that Signy's second child will be a daughter 
from whom a great family will come. And where you saw it covered in leaves is symbolized a religious conversion to come, which her descendants will follow. Oh, of course. Yeah, right. That, of course, that's what it means. Oh, uh, yes. The, yeah, well, before leaves were about accomplishments. And right. Like, now the lack of a, le- right. So the lack of leaves in the first vision meant that Signe's son Horth would be less popular than she might like. So obviously the abundant leaves on this one mean Christianity is coming to Iceland. Yeah. Is that the problem? I just want to be clear that we're taking a lot on faith here. Oh, we sure are. I mean, we've talked already about the literary convenience of this sort of dream interpretation. It serves a purpose. I understand that. The aspect of fate or predestination or maybe not predestination exactly. The the turning of the seemingly arbitrary aspects of life toward a comforting knowability. Although, if this is a comforting vision, it's only because it leaves out some fairly important information. Well, yeah, I mean, for starters, the brief version of the missing information is that both Signe and her foster mother are going to die very shortly. That is brief. Well, <laughs> the slightly longer version is that Signe, unable to bear the growing coldness between her and Grimkill, uh, asks to go visit her brother Torfi in the summertime. Now, Grimkill tells her to be gone no more than two weeks. Which I found very interesting. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this before, but this idea of a, a husband controlling his wife's visits to her family, especially right. in an unhappy marriage, right? Right. And, uh, and in this case, I also got the impression that what he was looking for was for her to be back in time for the child to be born. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. But yeah, she, but it's absolutely him asserting control. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for him, when she arrives at her brother's farm, he tells her to stay with him through the winter. And honestly, she doesn't need much convincing. No. Uh, but then uh, her foster mother, Thordis, dies suddenly in the early winter. So they're uh, going to have to. Well, see, where are they going to get a dream interpreter now? Right. Like, well, who, I mean, that one wasn't much good, really. What if I have another tree dream? Right. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a problem for Signe. What is this one going to be? Uh, her foster mother's death deeply upsets Signe. And then she also grows ill just as she's going into labor. She delivers a healthy baby girl, but then dies without ever leaving the birthing bed. Now, we already know that Signe and her brother, Torvi, have a close relationship. Mm-hmm. And her death drives him into a rage. He blames Grimkel for this death, presumably because he's the baby's father. And he also blames the actual baby, which <laughs> seems a little harsh. Although, yeah, hmm, I mean, he's I deadly serious about it, too. Uh, he wants to expose the kid or even just have her killed. Uh, he sends his foster son, Sigurth, out with the baby to commit infanticide in the woods. Now, Sigurd's in a tough spot. First of all, child exposure is not an easy thing to live with to start. And then he knows there's no reason to kill this baby. Torvi's behaving irrationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you ignore your foster father's orders and risk his wrath? Or do you obey his orders and risk taking the blame when he cools down and decides that he wants his sister's daughter to live? Yeah, that's about the size of it. Uh, so... Sigurd sort of punts the question by bringing the baby to the farm of Signy's son. Andy, remember we said a while back that Signy had both a son and a foster son, both named Grimm. Yes, and we've mostly been dealing with the foster son up to this point, Grimm the Short. Right, so this is the other one, her birth son, Grimm the Average Height. Uh, (laughs) He finds a baby on his stoop that bears a remarkable resemblance to his mother. Well, Uh, of course. He works out what's happening, or at least part of it, and has his wife Helga pretend to go into labor so they can claim the baby as their own. So he's now hiding his infant half-sister by claiming that she's his daughter. Yeah, I mean, well, there's a family resemblance. I mean, so it's a, you know, it's probably going to work. 
But now this next couple of chapters turns into a game of find the button. The point is, this is going to be one well-traveled baby. Baby, baby, who's got the baby? Round and round <laughs> she goes. Right, so she starts in her uncle Torfi's house, then ends up with Sigurd, <laughs> then with her half-brother Grim. Oh, uh-huh. and Grim and his wife Helga baptize the baby and give her a name. They name her Thorbjorn. Now, meanwhile, Grim has to travel to Torvi's farm to bury his mother Signy, since this baby on his step is how he found out that his mother died. It's, it's pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Uh, and shortly after the burial of Signy, uh, Torvi visits Grim's farm to go over the splitting of Signy's monies. I remember mm-hmm. that Torvi was put in charge of everything Signy owned when Signy married Grimkill. Uh, yeah. So he spots the baby, and he isn't fooled for a second. I mean, the kid looks just like Signy, apparently. And by the way, uh, we're told it's exceptionally big for a newborn, so she's recognizable. And he grows really angry with them. You've grown pretty bold if you dare to raise a child I ordered to be exposed. But Helga, Grimm's wife, is having none of Torvi's nonsense. Mm-hmm. The child is closely related to Grimm, so there was ample justification for saving his life. Good for her. Torvi's just being yeah. a bastard. Uh, and then he yells at her for a while, and then he yells at Grimm for a while. And he wants to get revenge on Sigurd, but Grimm mm-hmm. saw that coming and has already sent Sigurd out of Iceland on a ship. And the entire logic of this is is what? That Torvi hates Grimkel so much that he wants to kill Grimkel's daughter? Yeah, That's yeah. it? He's, uh, we could have a it's whole crazy. conversation about Torvi's love of Signy. And I'm sure there are people who'd read a borderline incestuous jealousy in Torvi's resentment of Grimkel. Maybe growing out of that Gisli tradition, some people absolutely remember we talked about uh, Gisli and Thordis. That some people absolutely theorize that he had an infatuation right, with her. Right. I, I think um, there's more evidence in this saga, i.e., not an absolute absence of evidence the way there is in Gisli. Uh, right. I agree. But uh, Torvi's steering into the curve here. I mean, child murder is taking this to a deranged extreme. It sure uh, is. But he still has a claim on the kid, since one, he's the maternal uncle. And two, she was born in his house. Fortunately, Grimm and Helga thought that through as well. Mm-hmm. By sprinkling water on baby Thorbjörg and naming her, they made it illegal for Torvi to kill her. Yes. Because that's a thing in this saga. <laughs> so <laughs> Torvi can take the baby back, which he does, but he can't expose her or kill her now because that would be murder. Right, as opposed to killing an unnamed baby, which would be fine? Eh, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I think there's, you know, there's certain... A religious logic, I guess, to that or practical logic right. to it. Right. I mean, these early laws and practices are tricky. We, we just don't have enough written down to know for sure what the practice was at a specific time in a specific yeah. part of Iceland in the 10th century. So we'll take this one on faith. But remember, this is a 14th century saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be clear, this water sprinkling and naming is a pre-Christian practice here. Right. Yeah. Remember that there's this prophecy about Christianity coming to Iceland in the next generation. Uh, we're still in the 10th century. Here. Right. Okay, so Thorbjörg's gone from Signy to Torvi to Grimm and Helga, and now back to Torvi. Now Torvi gives the baby to one of his servant women to nurse, but he won't give her any money for the baby's care. And it's becoming more and more clear that we don't like Torvi. We do not. Uh, and we're going to like terrible. him less in a second. Uh, Torvi finds a beggar named Sigmund who goes from farm to farm with his wife and his son Helgi asking for food. Torvi yeah. gives Thorbjorg to this begging family. And then he turns them all out and instructs them to go to Grimkill's farm at Ulfusvatten to beg for shelter. Yeah, we really, really don't like Torvi. We have to say, though, neither does our author's narration. 
it's made explicit <laughs> that Torvi is doing this only to humiliate Grimkill. And he chooses mm-hmm. Sigmund because if Grimkill gets angry and violent, eh, who cares if Sigmund and his family get killed? <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. Uh, so Sigmund, who who figures this is his ticket, right? This is an important connection to an important family. He isn't the sort of man to turn down a piece of good fortune like this. He takes yeah. his newly expanded family on the road. Uh, but not immediately to Grimkill's place at Ulfusfa. No, no. Now, Sigmund finds that people are much more generous to a family with a beautiful baby girl in mm-hmm. town. And suddenly he's being offered nice places to sleep and good food wherever he goes. Right. And he doesn't want this particular golden goose to stop laying eggs. So Sigmund and his family take a meandering route that actually takes months. Mm-hmm. They travel from Torvi's farm to Andakil to Melachvervi and then along the coast around Rekinis and then back along through Grindavik before finally coming to Olusvatn. And I, I, I didn't get a chance to look at the saga maps.is yeah. and, and check this out, but I imagine it's all over the it's place. It's meandering. I mean, this is not a direct yeah. trip at all. Uh, and after all that yeah. travel, he finally comes to Grimkill's farm. And when Grimkill asks who's at the door, Sigmund replies, Why, Sigmund is here, your child's foster father, good sir, with Thorbjörg, your daughter. She is the finest of children. I don't recall him saying exactly that, does he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> an idiot. exactly what he does. And Grimkill, unsurprisingly, is not entirely thrilled by the news of a uh, a homeless wanderer, a vagabond, <laughs> nay, a hobo, <laughs> raising his, his daughter no, that he didn't no. even know was born. No, I, I, the fatted calf remains free from any danger of being slaughtered. Well... Let's remember that this is the first time that he's had any word about his daughter surviving, let alone what's become of her. No, he's not happy. Listen to what this bum says. You, the most miserable of vagabonds, foster father to my child. (laughs) Torvi's hatred of me takes many forms. First, he kills the girl's mother and then drives the child into beggary. And then he spits out a verse. Torfi was not slow to kill the prop of needlework. He truly dishonors this blade breaker in every way. The swordsman has sent this goddess of the silver urn wrongfully into vagrancy. This grief is to be repaid. It's a lot of strong words there. You could say that again. Uh, I mean, start with the fact that he's accusing Torvi of killing his own sister. I know, right? That's huge. Especially since he's put it in a verse. If he can't make that charge stick, well, then he's opening himself up to a countercharge of slander. Exactly. And that last line, this grief is to be repaid, that's an overt threat. Absolutely. Yeah, these two are not going to be united in their grief over Signy's death. Well, they are united in their contempt for the baby Thorbjörg. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Convenient. Grimkill doesn't even ask to see his daughter. He just yells at Sigmund to get out or suffer a beating or worse. This poor kid just cannot catch a break. And it it just keeps getting worse. Now that he knows that Thorbjörg isn't a ticket into the upper class, well, Sigmund starts neglecting the child. Now, we aren't given any details here, but it probably isn't pretty. Yeah, things finally turn around a bit when Sigmund and his family stop at Grimstather Farm, the home of Grim the Short. Now, Grimm's already got one child from this family living at his house, right? That being Horth. <laughs> and he instantly recognizes Thorbjorg as the daughter of Signy. Now, this kid must be the spitting image of her mom. Right. 
Because everywhere she goes, everyone knows who she is immediately. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not like this is the only baby girl in Iceland. Fair enough. Um, yeah, no, I, and he does recognize her instantly. Uh, and Grimm immediately claims the baby. Torvi seems to want to bring dishonor on all this baby's kinsmen, including himself. But Signy would expect me not to allow her child to travel from house to house if I could prevent it. And Sigmund is only too happy to get rid of the baby, so the children mm-hmm. of Signy and Grimkel are reunited. Hooray, I guess. You guess? Well, I mean, it's okay and good for Grim for taking the kids and all. I love Grim the short, yep. but... What a rotten family this turned out to be. Yeah, and things don't really improve much. Uh, Grimkel later summons Torvi on a charge of plotting to kill Thorbjörg, and on a second charge to try to recover Signy's dowry. It's just strange, the whole thing. Yeah, no, he's, he, he clearly doesn't care about the actual kid, by the way. He's just out to ruin Torvi. Well, I, I mean, I understand that. There's an animosity between them from the yeah. very beginning, but all of this, it's, it's pretty tawdry. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we can actually jump ahead a bit here. Because yeah, I'll buy that. Once you bring it on home. Well, Grim the Short gets involved in the case and offers to pay 100 pieces of silver to the law speaker Thorkel Moon if Moon can get Grimkel and Torvi to settle the case. Now, eventually, Moon manages to pass a settlement involving Torvi loaning a large amount to Grimkel, who will then pay it back twofold in six years' time. And it makes neither side happy, and there's a fair number of hard words exchanged, but the settlement actually holds... Or at least open violence is averted, which is great. Right. In a situation like this, that's about all you can really hope for. Uh, eventually, Grimkel, who seems... Uh, Grimkel just honestly f- seems to forget all about his kids from his first from this marriage. Yeah. Uh, he eventually marries for a third time to a woman named Sigrid and settles into a peaceful semi-retirement. Well, how nice for him. Yeah. But he's left Grim the Short to raise these two kids, Horth and Thorbjörn. Yeah. And it's not like they live on the other side of Iceland. So it's not like they're never going to see their father again, whether or not they want to. Oh, he, no. He's around. No. Uh, we haven't seen the last of Grimkill yet, and he hasn't seen the last of his kids. Part three. Horth is young, arrogant, and hates everything you stand for. Hmm. Uh, this is what now? <laughs> so now a few years slip by without any real change in circumstances. Uh... Horth grows tall and broad. He's an excellent swimmer and possesses great natural strength. He has a pale complexion, slightly bulging eyes, broad shoulders, a narrow waist, and smallish hands and feet. That's so specific. It really is. And he's also been blessed with, and this is really emphasized, a great head of hair. Oh, you picked up on that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a weird bit. The Old Norse actually says... Herdramana best. Yeah. The best hair of any man. Oh, it's good. Uh, it is light colored, it is thick, and it is luxurious. He's a, a preteen Fabio before the bird hit his face. <laughs> oh, good. Not a dated reference at all. Uh, <laughs> so we're told one more thing about Horth. He has a remarkable ability to see through illusions. We're Ooh. told that he always saw everything just as it was. That's really handy. Mm-hmm. But it, it sounds like what he's seeing is mostly his own reflection in a mirror. <laughs> or at least the saga well, authors only. I mean, despite his wonderful hair, uh, Horde's relationship with his father, Grimkill, remains distant at best. Both uh, uh, physically and emotionally. Right. Uh, but even though he's been deadbeat dadding his way through the story so far, Grimkill's still got a daughter from his first marriage, 
who, as far as we know, he hasn't managed to become estranged from. Okay, yeah. See, it's easy to forget that part, but he's got an older daughter named Thurid. Mm-hmm. And as this next section opens up, Grimkel receives a visit from Ilugi Hrolfsson, a well-connected, strong, and rich man who lives on Holm. Mm-hmm. And Ilugi yeah. is, is worth remembering. Yes. That's a name you want to jot down. Yep. Uh, Ilugi is extremely well-connected. Uh, among other things, he's the brother-in-law of Gizur the White. Right, which uh, is a big name that we've seen in a bunch of sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not accidental, I think, that this family gets introduced in a chapter right after we finish the story of Thorbjörg's infancy. Right, She's got this prophesied future in the Christian conversion, and Elugi's family line is going to include a number of prominent priests and bishops of early Christian Iceland. Now, are we giving the author credit for a deliberate connection there? I think it's possible. Let's call it more likely than not. Hmm. Way to hedge those bets, John. That's right. All right, so Elugi isn't just dropping by to show off his family connections. He proposes marriage to Grimkel's daughter Thurid, and since Elugi's a highly desirable son-in-law, Grimkel makes the deal at once. He doesn't consult Thurid about it, of course, and he certainly doesn't think he needs to even mention it to anyone else. Yeah, still don't much like that guy. Nope. Uh, so a few <laughs> months later, Elugi returns for the wedding, and when he arrives with his friends, he notices that Thurid's brother Horth who is now about 12, is nowhere to be found. Yeah, in fact, uh, Horth wasn't technically invited in the mm-hmm. technical sense that no one invited him. <laughs> Which actually tells us all we need to know about how things have been going between Grimkel and his other kids. Yeah, well, Ilugi doesn't like this, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. Having a brother-in-law who resents your marriage can be a real problem. Right. See, especially if, brother-in-law, <laughs> especially if that brother-in-law is shaping up to be a large, tall, hairy and athletically gifted young man. Like Horth, for instance. Right, for instance. Uh, yeah, Elugi decides to ride over to Grim the Short's farm and try to smooth the path with Horth. He asks Horth to come to the wedding, but Horth isn't having any of it. You might have mentioned it earlier if it was that important to you. I will not go, since I've been consulted so little in the thing up to now. I mean, that is the most mature 12-year-old voice I have ever heard. He sounds like he's a little bit down on his luck. Yeah. And he spent a, a bit of too much time in the Dust Bowl. Well, you know, <laughs> children grow old early in Iceland. I guess yeah. they do. No, I don't. What are I'm, you doing? I don't know. I'm not buying this voice. <laughs> nope. What the hell does this guy sound like? I can't quite get a beat on him. I think, honestly, I think Horth is supposed to sound like uh, almost Gaston-esque. Really? Yeah. What does he's, Gaston he's, sound like? I've seen that I saw that movie once like thirty years ago. It's the, the nobleman the, the, the big brave nobleman voice that I always do. Hi. Like that voice? Yes. You're doing this kind deep. of voice? It's deep and bold. All right. Oh, you want me to get deep and bold. Deep and bold. All right. John. Well, that's just great. I can do that voice all day long. Well that's 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 half Half deep nobleman voice and half Charlton Heston and about uh, one third something else that I can't really quite identify. <laughs> Let's not do that. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> <laughs> you did ale for over a year. Oh, Why don't I take Horth? I've got a very generic voice for him. <laughs> Be my guest. I'm in the middle of reading Bone to my kids and the hundred voices I'm doing for that are making it difficult for me to think of a new one. I'm sure they're all minor variations on voices you've done here. <laughs> <laughs> a surprising number of Yosemite Sams, actually. 
<laughs> Perfect. Okay. All right, then. Now, Little Horth's got a fairly high opinion of his importance in the scheme of things, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah. Let's remember that he's 12. Yes. He's an arrogant little streak of yellow snow, isn't he? He got a very deep voice, too. Yeah, uh, he does. I, John, I feel like you might have been like this as a tween. <laughs> I was so not like this. Uh-huh. I wouldn't have wanted to go to the wedding. <laughs> but only because I sought to avoid social situations whenever possible. Well, that does ring true. I did have a preternaturally deep voice for a 12-year-old, though. Did you? Okay. Well, Horth actually does end up attending the wedding because his foster brother, Ger, persuades him that they would gain more honor by going than by staying away. Mm -hmm. And although Horth and Grimkel apparently ignore each other, the wedding itself and the feasting go off without a hitch. Now, that sounds like an unsuccessful wedding. Because... Without a hitch, Andy. I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't imagine why you weren't more sought after at social gatherings. Generally. Right? <laughs> so, after the wedding, Ilugi rides partway back to Grimm's with Horth and Ger. And as they are parting, Ilugi says, Horth, I would like us to have a friendship between us. Here is a shield I want to give you. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and I guess if I'm doing Horth, I, I got to do both voices. Yep. Okay. Horth says, no thanks. My foster father, Grimm, has plenty of pieces of wood. <laughs> is there a problem, this, officer? This is the... <laughs> I told you. That's what you broke out? That's the... I told you. It's very simple. Oh, my God. All right, I just want to point out that when you make this big deal about, like, saying, no, no, I'll take this one. And the voice you come up with is that... <laughs> Look, Whatever, I'm not man. the master of voices, John. Apparently not. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, you can shut up. <laughs> and and Horth is not done. He actually he has a verse as well. The generous soldier gave me a shield that was no good. He will need this servant in the storm of battle. Let this wise warrior, oathbreaker, and ring spender, who loves the golden goddess, have the treasure for himself. Yeah, amazingly, Ilugi doesn't just knock Horth off his horse at this point. Uh, he's quite the diplomat. I mean, he might as well be. John, this, uh, he, yeah. like, the, I think the saga author with the poetry goes so heavy-handed. Yeah, he because does. this this one too is kind of prophetic. Yes, and there's no, there's just no reason for it. <laughs> I think what we end up with is a is a poetry that really stops at the first level. Right, you get the Kennings. Yeah. But no real depth behind the Kennings. I, right? So I agree. you get things like Ring Spender, Golden Goddess, and so forth. But there's really no uh, veiled meaning behind that. The The meaning of the verses tends to be right up front. It's very up front. And it just feels out of place to me. This The, the things that he's saying, it, it all rings true given what will happen. There's no reason that Horth should suspect that at this point. Right. But I think you're putting your thumb on something that is, I think, a feature of this saga, which is that it's one of the more, what I would call, literary of the sagas. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a it's a very written saga. Yeah. Yeah, these are saga that authors that have that are they're very very well read, and they know the traditions both of their the saga tradition and also the continental traditions. Right, and unlike uh, say a, a saga like Ale, where you have poetry that has centuries of its own history, this is poetry that's almost certainly being created alongside the saga right. itself, and so it's much more integrated into that story. Yeah, but to me, a little more clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> 
than the, say, well, I mean, you know, it lacks that again. It lacks that that depth, that patina it, of years. It does. Uh, so uh, this diplomat Ilugi uh, decides. All right, well, if the kid doesn't want a piece of wood, <laughs> he gives Horth an expensive arm ring instead, which Horth deigns to accept. Yeah, but he does say, "I don't know why. I don't think you'll keep faith as my brother-in-law, but we'll see how things turn out." And that's a bit more of that that uh, heavy-handed foreshadowing, obviously. Now, uh, there's a lot of foreshadowing <laughs> in this saga. Um, and it's not the only one. When Horth gets back to the farm, he gives the arm ring to his little sister, Thorbjorg, who is now a girl of about nine. And he tells her that she should keep it to remember him by, because he expects that she'll live much longer than him. And little Thorbjorg responds with a verse. If I were to learn that you were slain with weapons or fallen in battle. To that man, my bitter counsels would truly be a, a sentence of death. What a charming lass. Yeah, she's great. They're quite a pair of these two. Yeah, they are. We'll just uh, keep that verse in mind because it's another bit of important foreshadowing. For yeah. now, though, a few years pass in relative peace until Horth turns 15 and he and Gare are offered part ownership of a ship that is skippered by a Norwegian named Brunjolf Thorbjörnsen. Yeah, let's push on here. There's a bit of an awkward conversation when Horth has to ask his dad for some seed money for the business, but he gets the money from his stepmother and it's all fine. Uh, the only other holdup is that Gare wants Horth to bring along another guy their age as a servant, a young local Named Helgi Sigmundersen. Yes, and earlier when we were telling the story of Thorbjörg's sad life as an infant, we mentioned that Sigmund, the beggar whose family she was given to, had a young son named Helgi. Mm-hmm. Well, Helgi's grown up now, and his family is still in the area. And Geir, who has a keen sense of the duties of kinship, sees Helgi as having a connection to Thorbjörg since they were briefly foster siblings. Yeah, but Horth doesn't read it that way, uh, partly because he's not really interested in the niceties of these extended kin relationships, and partly because he correctly sees Helgi as part of a painful past that his sister Thorbjörg would rather not think about. But she actually tries to talk Gare out of it, mm-hmm. because she believes that Helgi is an unlucky man and will ultimately bring misfortune on their trip. But Gare insists, and so Helgi comes along. Right, which means Horth has his first group of travel companions. Right. And the ship set sail for Norway that summer and makes safe passage to Bergen. Now, historically, we're at the reign of King Harald Greycloak in Norway. And you know what that means. Uh, I don't... Ludafisk and Krumkaka for everybody? (laughs) No, not what I was going for. But sure, yes. Part four. There's a world going on underground. Now I really want a Krumkaka. Uh, were you talking about Gunild? Yes. Yes, I was. Gunild, mother of kings. Well, specifically the mother of this king. Right. Well, she's an imposing figure. Yep. And she's around. But at first, the visitors don't have any trouble and don't even really have anything to do with the royal family. Mm-hmm. Brunjolf, their Norwegian partner, finds lodging for them all and generally takes care of things. But one day... Ger goes out for a walk on his own, and a group of men, led by a man in a dark cloak, stop him. Mm. And the dark-cloaked man is named Arnthor, 
and he's Gunild's personal treasurer. Okay, so the whole not interacting with the royals thing lasted about as long as your sentence. Well, we're compressing things a bit here, John, but uh, yes. Yeah. Arnthor decides to mess with the Icelander and demands that Geir sell him his cloak of homespun wool. But when he refuses, one of Arnthor's friends pulls the cloak off of him, and then Geir grabs it back, and there's a tug of war. And nasty then bullies. Arnthor, nasty Norwegian bullies. Can you believe it? No wonder our numbers aren't so good in Norway. <laughs> <laughs> and then Arnthor reaches out to help pull the cloak away from Geir. And Geir loses his temper and whips out his sword and, well, lops Arnthor's arm off. Yeah, so much for lying low. Yeah. Uh, Arnthor's friends all crowd around him trying to help stop the bleeding. And since no one's really paying attention to him... Gear just puts his cloak back on and I saunters back to the house where he's staying. I love it. <laughs> just giving the old sword a bit of an airing out. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and when Horth sees the blood on Gear's sword, he asks for the whole story and then says, Well, what you did was called for. Being passive about it won't get us anywhere. Yeah, and then he does something that shows the basic difference between Horth and other Icelanders in this situation, which is that he calls for help. Well, it's a smart strategy. Other Icelanders should write that down, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. There are two dozen Icelanders staying nearby, and all of them come running. So when trouble comes, Geir's got plenty of backup. Yeah, and that trouble comes quickly, because Arnthor bleeds to death from his wound. Oops. And it isn't long before King Harold Greycloak himself comes to the door with a retinue of men and demands that Geir be handed over to him. He's killed my friend and my mother's treasurer. I actually like that voice a lot. <laughs> that was really good. Now, Horth, you won't be surprised to hear, isn't having this. No, it would be dishonorable to hand him over. But I'll tell you what. We'll offer you self-judgment if you agree to spare Gare in life and limb. Now, the problem here is that the king can command superior forces, but the Icelanders are in a highly defensible position. No matter how superior Harold's forces, someone's still got to be the first one through that door into a room of two dozen armed Icelanders. Yeah, it's not an appealing prospect. Not at all. Uh, fortunately, Brynjolf arrives at this point and makes an offer of compensation. And Harold accepts, although he excludes his mother from the settlement. Hmm. Well, he excludes her because he doesn't believe for a second that she won't want blood vengeance for this. Oh, sure. No, he's not about to take responsibility for his famously vengeful mother when her own treasurer has been killed. And we know a lot about her vengeful ways. Yes. We spend a whole year on them. <laughs> of course, this is also really smart negotiating. Right, it is, yes. But it also means that Horth and Gare and company need to get out of town, like, now-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, Brynjolf sends them to his father, Thorbjorn's farm in Vik, and they all spend the fall and the winter there. But in the spring, Thorbjorn tells them that Gunild is most likely looking for them, and they should probably just get out of Norway entirely. Well, that didn't last long. Yeah, no. It's <laughs> a really quick trip. Well, I mean, they're not heading home quite yet. Thorbjorn sends them to Gotland in Sweden, where he can hide them with his friend Earl Harald. Yeah, I, I find Earl Harald interesting because, you know, most of the time in the sagas when we encounter royal personages or, you know, nobility, they mm -hmm. tend to be real people, but... In the case of Earl Harold, there's no evidence that this man ever existed. But I think we'll see why uh, in the future. Uh, sure. Now, when Horth and his men arrive in Gotland, they find that Harold keeps a cheerful and fairly full house. 
and he has a son named Hroar and a daughter named Helga. Now, Hroar is about Horde's age, and he's actually out raiding when Horde's crew arrives. But once he gets back, well, he and Horde become great friends. It's nice he's meeting so many people. He's out there making a yeah. name for himself, making friends. Maybe this time nobody has to get killed over it. Well, not right away, at least. Everyone's having a grand time oh, until you when they all go out to the outhouse together. Would they, they kill now? <laughs> oh, no one. No one. It's just that Hroar stands up at the feast and announces, I step onto the bench and I make this vow that I will have broken into the burial mound of Salty the Viking before the next Yule comes round. That's what Hroar sounds like, is it? It is now, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Has to be distinguished from sure. from uh, Horth. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, now you have two voices. Uh, well, his his father isn't all that impressed. Uh, you, uh, just, with the voice? He's not even <laughs> like it? <laughs> not about the voice. He reminds everyone that Soti was a terrible Viking and a troll in life and has only grown worse in death. Hroar mm-hmm. is going to need help. Well, if only there were a promising young Icelandic adventurer sitting in the hall waiting for his... Yeah, no, no. Horth's tired of your speech. He leaps up and says, Is it proper to follow your customs? I also make this vow to go with you into Sotis Mount and not leave before you do. Right. And then Gare stands and uh, vows to follow Horth into the mound. And Gare's friend Helgi vows to follow Gear into the hole. So you get awful crowded in that burial mound. Well, Horth still isn't super happy about having Helgi along. Remember, this is Helgi Sigmundersson, the guy whose parents carried Thorbjörg around southern Iceland for a few months. And so Horth says, It's not certain, Helgi, that there will be a long time between our deaths. Give careful thought to not being the cause of both our deaths and of more men's besides. But, of course... Helgi's allowed to come along the trip anyway. Yeah, now this this raid on Sotty's grave is probably the second most famous passage from this entire saga. Second most? Yeah, yeah. No, we'll get to number one in a couple episodes. But this is Sotty the Viking, Andy. I'm calling an official timeout from our saga here. Oh, an official timeout. Yeah, no, I do it with my kids all the time. Uh, I just want to take a <laughs> minute to talk about Sotty. Uh, we've run into this guy before. Yes, yes, we have. This is the guy that Hrut was chasing, right? We mentioned Hrut a moment ago. Soti was terrorizing the Norwegian coast in the early chapters of Njal's saga during Hrut Herjofsson's visit there. Uh Hrut and Soti chased each other around the North Sea for a bit before Soti was captured and killed by one of Gunnild's sons. Yes, exactly. But Uh here's the thing. If we take a look at other sagas, if we take a look at Arrowod saga, for example, which is a legendary saga, we also find Soti leading a fleet of Viking ships before being hunted down and killed by Arrowod himself. Wait a minute. And in the saga of Halfdan Brana's foster son, Soti is also reputed to be terrorizing Denmark and even running off the king's son Halfdan until Halfdan kills him with the help of a troll woman's magic. Interesting. This Salty really gets around. Uh, I guess he does. He's a legendary figure, obviously. And this profile of his is more or less a Viking so terrible he shakes kingdoms when he sails by. Except that he seems to get killed in every one of those stories, (laughs) which kind of undermines him as a world-shaking criminal mastermind. But it does serve to boost the credentials of whoever's being credited with killing him in a particular story. Right. I think that's clearly the point of these stories. Except for Hrut. Hrut fails to catch Soti 
and then returns to Norway to find out that his lover's son has taken care of the problem for him. Slightly less impressive, though. A little bit. The, the point is that Soti is essentially a boogeyman. He's one of those names that circulates in the stories and becomes synonymous with the most successful and ruthless of the Viking raiders. And in some stories, he serves that role directly by turning up with his fleet and being impressive right up until an even more impressive hero cuts him down. And that's what our author is using him for here. Right. This is supposed to be the most monstrous Viking of his generation. Mm -hmm. As the Earl says, he was a troll in life and he's even worse now that he's dead. And so raiding his burial mound is the kind of thing that you do only if you were mad, drunk, or protected by the narrator. Right, and varying degrees of likelihood there. Uh, but the point is that Soti's mound is the stuff of legend. Right? It's mm -hmm. no errand for the timid. We're deep into the more imaginative side of saga writing here. Uh, which also means, as you might expect, that Soti has an opinion about his grave being robbed. Yeah, yeah. So Hror... Horth and Gare and even little Helgi, they find eight other men that are willing to travel with them. And the Dirty Dozen ride through the woods <laughs> to that grave mound. Hang on, hang on. They're not there yet. Uh, there's a stop on the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was planning to skip that part because... I, I mean, it's pretty pointless, but it speaks to the magical nature of this episode. I guess, um, but it, it really doesn't go anywhere, does it? I know. The travelers meet with a man in a black striped hood and tunic. He's standing outside of a large building in the middle of the woods. What? Uh, this, this man your calls name? Him, I know. He calls himself Bjorn, and he claims to be a friend of Horth's kinsman. I know that you intend to break open Sorty the Viking's mound, but that's not going to work if you do it on your own. If things turn out as I expect, that you fail in breaking open the mound, return and visit me. And predictably, they can't actually get the mound open that night. Yeah, no, the, the problem is that they spend all day digging at it, and they even get down to a wood barrier, but the, the mound reseals itself overnight, so they have to start over again each day. It's fairly typical fairy tale folklore type stuff. Yeah, except that this is still a saga, so when they return to Bjorn, he tells them that the solution is actually quite simple. Here is a sword I will give you. Drive it into the hole you make in the mound, and then find out whether it closes up again or not. And, and you've got to jiggle it a little bit. <laughs> right, so the solution to the problem is to stab it. Yeah, a surprising number of things can actually be solved that way. <laughs> Humans have figured that out very quickly. Right. Uh, it's, it usually isn't a good solution, but still it works. Right. So are we going to just ignore how weird the entire Bjorn interaction is? I think we are, yeah. I mean, that was my intention initially. So, okay. Right. So here we have a random guy in the Norwegian woods handing out magical swords and claiming friendship with Horth's family. That doesn't uh, bother you at all? I mean, later on, they work out that it was probably Odin. Is that better? I guess a little bit, yeah. But assuming they're right, which they probably are. If this is Odin showing up in the story, then this little cameo is part of a much bigger religious narrative that we'll get into later, probably in the final episode for the saga. Oh, but it won't oh, pay off that great. Right, no, it doesn't. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a seed that bears no fruit, Andy. It's a seed uh, that bears a tiny right. fruit. It is cast upon rocky ground. <laughs> uh, but okay, back to the burial mound. The, the problem now is that uh, two days of evidence that there's powerful evil magic guarding the mound has somewhat drained the enthusiasm of most of the party. Fror is the first to say they should probably turn back, 
and several of the other men agree with him. But Horth just shrugs and says, It's no good not fulfilling a man's vow. Let's keep working at it. Presumably he flips his gorgeous hair as he says it. Yes, he does. I mean, that now, that Yeah, I can do this one. Now, that doesn't exactly sound enthusiastic either. Mm-hmm. It, it's more that Horth just has a keener sense of his honor and reputation than some of the others. That may be. Uh, but anyway, sure enough that when they stick the sword into the hole they've made, it keeps the hole open overnight. So on the fourth day of work, they can finally break away all the timbers and walling that's protecting the burial chamber. So and on elaborate. day five, I know, it's a, they're finally ready to open the stone door on the fifth day. Horth does the honors, but he warns everyone else to stand back to avoid the blast of corruption from the bad air of the tomb. Yeah. Now, at first, I wondered if this was some aspect of the supernatural true sight ability that Horth's supposed to have, but I don't think it is. I think it's just more a typical ability of protagonists in all sorts of literature to be slightly more intuitive or intelligent than they have the right to be. Right. This is like um, like Indiana Jones knowing how to survive the supernatural deaths at the end of his movies. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Well, since the others don't know that Horth's the protagonist, two of the men ignore him. And so when Horth opens the door and dives out of the way, the two of them are killed instantly by the foul gases that blow out. <laughs> yes. And then Horth picks himself up, dusts himself off, and turns to the remaining men and says, So, who wants to go in first? <laughs> he is turning into Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of the group just watched two men drop dead just from breathing the air from the mound. There is a completely predictable lack of people leaping forward to volunteer. And even Hror is shuffling his feet and avoiding Horth's eye contact. So Horth has to go in first, but that's Mm -hmm. what a good protagonist does. Sure. Now, there's a bit of organizing that goes on, and eventually it's agreed that Horth will lead and Ger will come behind him with fire and wax, and Hror and Helgi will hold the ropes. Oh, and Horth gets first pick of any loot. Wait, back up a second. Fire and wax. So he brings a candle? Well, I mean, it's a candle, but it's not lit yet. So he's got a little torch going and an unlit candle. So uh-huh. Horde says to bring them both because each have great powers. Right. Okay. So the two foster brothers make their way into the mound and they soon find another door. I think we'll let the saga tell this part. They broke the door down and then there was a great earthquake and the lights went out. A terrible stench rushed out. There inside the mound was a faint glimmering light. When they went in, they saw an entire ship with a great deal of treasure inside of it. Gare remained in the doorway, but Horth approached the ship to take the treasure. Then Sotty suddenly spoke. Why so eager, Horth, to break into the mound dweller's house, though Hroar asked it? I have never done you, sword swinger, any injury in my life. You know what? For an undead man, he makes a great point. I mean, it's entirely fair. Yeah. But Horv's not the kind of man to interrupt a grave robbing for a nuanced discussion of situational ethics. <laughs> so few are. <laughs> and instead of reconsidering his life choices, Horth responds with a verse of his own. I did it to find the Cairn Dweller, and from the ghost to snatch old riches. Everyone agrees that there is probably not in the whole world a worse man who wields a weapon. Oh, so 
So Horus is not just a grave robber. He's a smack-talking grave robber. Well, because when you're robbing the undead Vikings legend of his wealth, well, antagonizing him is its definitely a smart move. I mean, could it really make a difference at this point, honestly? Probably not. True. <laughs> so Salty leaps up How from his seat. How could it be worse? Salty leaps up from his seat and runs at Horth, and they begin to wrestle, and Salty is definitely the stronger of the two. Mm-hmm. Horth begins to weaken quickly, and Salty's grip on him is so strong that Horth's flesh is being squeezed between his fingers. But just as he's about to go down, Horth tells Ger to light the wax candle, and the light from the wax candle drives Salty back and finally causes him to collapse on the ground. Because of candlelight. That's what it says, yes. Okay, so we're meant to see this as a kind of substitute light for sunlight or moonlight, I assume. I think so. Now, we've seen before that the undead are weakened by moonlight and dormant in daylight, so there might be a hint of logic here. Except that the light from the torch that uh, Ger was carrying, apparently that didn't do anything. So it's not as simple as light equals sunlight. Yeah, that's a problem. Something about this candle. The only hint we have here is that Horth said that the candle and the flame each have powers. Mm-hmm. There is something in the combining of them that has power. Right? It's almost like a chemical reaction. I think we're getting into a kind of mysticism here. It's a magic candle. Is that what you mean? Uh, sort of. I, I mean that there's a general mystical association with candles. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what the author is referring to here. So all candles are magical. I I mean, well, according to a fair number of stories and birthday cakes I'm familiar with, yeah. Uh, a good candle burns cleanly, and you definitely bring your best candle into a burial mound with you. Okay. Right? I mean, Yankee Candle's Forest Glen-scented nonsense isn't going to cut it here. You want that high-end beeswax job, huh? Yeah, something like that. Uh, okay. This candle's light has a purifying quality to it, and Soti does not like it. I have to wonder if there's some kind of 14th century Christian mysticism involved uh-huh. here but uh you know it's superimposed on the past obviously right. well remember that even in the in the christian church the best candles were used for the altar right the right. smokeless white candles made of the best beeswax were used for the altar mm-hmm. you used smokier yellower less high quality candles made of tallow and whatnot uh for daily use yeah so, well I mean, yeah there could be an idea that a good candle would have a kind of religious association Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this candle does seem to paralyze Salty. Mm-hmm. Horth is able to steal the gold arm ring right off his bicep, and it's a nice ring. The Very author nice. tells us that it was such a great treasure that people say a gold ring of equal value has not come into Iceland since. Yeah, and Salty's outraged by this theft. You shall certainly learn that this ring will be the death of you and of all who own it. Except for one woman. Mm. See, and here we have the Glaum episode yeah. with Gretia, right? The curse. Right, absolutely. Uh, and Horde's response to this is to taunt Soti by calling Gare over with the candle. At which point, <laughs> Soti actually dives down into the earth to avoid the light. And so Gare and Horth now have the mound and all that treasure to themselves. Yeah, that threat or prophecy or whatever. So... This is the other part of the prophecy of doom that hangs over Horth's entire life. We saw his mother making a grim prediction about Horth's life when he was a kid, and we get more now. Right. And as you suggested, there is a clear analog here to someone like Greta Esmundersen. Right? Uh, Greta, remember, was cursed by the undead farmer Glaum with a fear of loneliness and a fear of the dark. 
that proves indirectly to be fatal to him. So this is a trope, a story mm-hmm. element for these outlaw stories. Yeah, uh, but but like any young saga protagonist worth his salt, Hor is not about to let a little thing like a repeated prophecy about his unhappy future get in his way. Not when he's got a heap of sparkling new treasure to his name. Yeah, but getting all that treasure out of the mound, that's a bit of a challenge. Uh-huh. It turns out that when that earthquake happened, everyone outside thought the two of them had been killed. Hmm, another trope, perhaps? Mm-hmm. And everyone but Hror and Helgi panicked. So instead of manning the ropes, Hror and Helgi are busily trying to calm and restrain their six companions. Yeah. And eventually they all calm down, but by then, Hror and Gare have actually managed to get the loot out of the mound by themselves <laughs> with no help of that rope. Yeah. And Hror, who... Uh, remember, this whole thing was his idea... <laughs> Hror yeah. uh, is now reduced to sheepishly asking Horth what it was like in the mound. <laughs> what was it like down there in that mound? <laughs> um, and Horth, of course, breaks out another verse. I oppose not a man who was easy or cowardly. It was hard to put down this heathen monster. I know when the light shone, Soti's face turned ugly. The cruel sorceress one wanted to dive into the earth. Now, he's showing a fair amount of restraint and not saying anything about Hror's failure to enter the grave. Well, yes, but he does go ahead and claim Sodi's arm ring and his helmet and his sword as his fee for clearing the mound. So he is still asserting his rights as the man who actually raided the, the tomb. But even with that done, the divided treasure is more than enough to make everyone happy. Well, almost everyone. Hror's father, the Earl, refuses to have any part of the treasure, saying that Hror should keep it, since he's the one who earned it. And you get the distinct impression that he's glaring at his son when he says it. Yeah, clearing his throat meaningfully. Uh, So that's it. Uh, Hror has successfully raided Saudi's mound, and he's now equipped with a top-notch helmet and sword and a rich arm ring. Hror's a young man on the rise. And uh, that's it. That's the early life of Horth, and to a lesser degree, the life of his sister Thorbjörg. Yeah, that was a lot to take in. Yeah, I think this saga is doing something really interesting that we haven't seen a lot of before. We're, we're getting, it's a kind of rumination on nature versus nurture. Right? We do get a fair amount of nature, or what the idea of natural influence might be in a medieval text, which would be something like fate or foretelling. You mean the old woman Thordis, mm-hmm. telling the future through Signy's dreams about her kids. Right, right. I think we have that on the one side, right? Despite the similarity of the dreams about them, Horde is foretold to be a difficult and unpopular man. Yeah, and his mother even adds that verse about him that every trip he takes is ill-fated. Right, and the last will be the worst, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's this other curse from Solti that this grave raiding will come back to haunt Horth. Meanwhile, Thorbjörg has this other fate before her, mm-hmm. that she'll be one of those people to accept Christianity and benefit from it. Sure, but against that, we have the circumstances of their childhood. Right? Horth is clearly resented by his mother and treated indifferently by his father, mm-hmm. so much so that he's removed from the house at the age of three and sent to live on another farm. And there's no indication of any closeness between any of them after that point. And Thorbjörg is possibly the most abused and neglected infant we've read about so far in any saga. And that includes the ones like Thorkel Scratcher, who actually were left to die in the woods. 
Yeah, I actually, I mean, reading this saga, I started to fall in love with the saga with the Thor Bjork story. Mm-hmm. It's very well told. It takes its time to yep. follow her from place to place. I think we kind of rushed through it here, um, but but it's worth reading. So if you can pick up yep. a copy of this saga, um, I, I encourage you to do so. And while Thor Bjork is going to remain a secondary figure, we're going to continue to keep track of her life. And she's going to become uh, much more significant as the saga progresses. Absolutely, yeah. So is Thorbjörg's future success because or in spite of her early life, John? And is Horth's difficult future due to predestination, to fate, or is it due to his unsettled childhood? I I have a feeling I I, I got a sense of what the last one is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, we're already seeing that he's kind of putting together a family, right? A kind of clan unit made up of the young men of the district. But they aren't necessarily the best influences on each other. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the saga shows how they all sort of drag each other into making some seriously bad decisions. Yeah. I like this idea. But really, we're, we're not going to get any answers until the next episode when we'll see mm-hmm. Horth and his friends turning from promising young men into increasingly brazen lawbreakers. Yeah, it's a good time. Uh, but as you say, it is next time. So what else have we got for this time? Well, uh, let me just pull out the old rune sack. I, I'm, I'm in my new house now, and I've got the rune sack right here next to my desk in a convenient spot. So convenient. Here's a communication from Bjorn underscore blacksmith. Oh, great. He writes, Hi, John and Andy. I'm a blacksmith with a keen interest in Viking Age smithing living history. You say Bjorn the blacksmith is a blacksmith. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Now, in one of your numerous Ale Saga podcasts, he writes, I was delighted to hear about Scott Ligrim's smithing prowess, his stone anvil origin story, and the beautiful verse about how the ironsmith must arise early to forge ore. And I was wondering what other references to blacksmithing are contained within the sagas. By the way, love your work. Informative and fun. Hi, Bjorn. Uh, Hey there. Thanks. Uh, This is a great question. Uh, Things like... How does blacksmithing work in the sagas? Those are exactly the kind of things that we try to occasionally answer in the saga briefs, but it's been a while since we've done one like that. Uh, So I think we can knock you up a quick answer here, but I'd like to get a longer answer together later. So you have a short answer for now. Yeah, kind of. Um, First of all, we have references to smithing here and there. Uh, The description of Scott Legrim setting up his forge and then the work he puts into his smithing is probably my favorite. But we do get others. For one thing, there's a thouter about Wayland the Smith, who's the legendary craftsman who supposedly forged, among other things, Beowulf's armor. Uh, his thouter is inserted into the chivalric saga, Thrithric Saga. Yeah, we should cover that one sometime in the saga shorts. I agree. I think that'd be a lot of fun, actually. Uh, get into some real kind of, you know, the real fantastical stuff. Yeah. Uh, oh, there are references to smithing scattered through the other saga as well, even the family sagas. If you go back way back to our episode on Gisli's saga, there's a pivotal moment when a broken sword called Grasida is reforged by an infamous sorcerer named Thorgrim the Nose. I remember that. Thorgrim is hired by Thorgrim Gothi and Thorkel Sursen, and the three of them lock themselves in Thorgrim the Nose's smithy. They took out the fragments of Grasida, and Thorgrim made a spearhead out of them. By evening, the spearhead was completely finished. The blade was damascened, and the shaft about a hand in length. So Thorgrim is a skilled blacksmith as well as a sorcerer, which I think is interesting and important for that that story. Yeah, he's also able to successfully damascene an already forged blade, which 
isn't strictly necessary for what his clients want. He's just showing off here. Mm-hmm. And the although there is uh, an association, I think, of uh, Damascene blades with magical abilities, uh, the blade is also strong enough. So he's a good blacksmith because it's strong enough to kill two men on separate occasions. You mentioned that connection to sorcery earlier, and Mm -hmm. there's a real connection between the knowledge of metal and the knowledge of magic, almost like the same connection between runes and magic, right? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Look how many spells in the sagas are about blunting the edge of a blade or turning a sword stroke aside or rendering a person impervious to harm from an edged weapon. Mm-hmm. Right? Or the existence of semi-magical swords, like the serpent sword Skofnung in Cormac Saga. Right? Remember, uh, Cormac is instructed on in all the rules governing the serpent in this That's sword right, that he's yes. borrowing. And Cormac says, what will you sorcerers think of next? That's right, right? yes. Smiths had a magic all their own. And that reference to the serpent in the blade, now some scholars have read that as another reference to a damascened blade. Right, which is entirely feasible. And would actually make some sense. The connections of the north to places like Byzantium and the Rus and further points east meant that the techniques, or at least the results, of Damascene metalwork were known and probably coveted in Scandinavia. And there's also obviously a, a cultural connection of forge work to Thor, who's mm-hmm. an actual yeah. god of blacksmiths, obviously. And yeah. that links up to the famous dwarvens, dwarven. And that dwarven. links up to the famous dwarven smiths who appear in multiple myths. In mm-hmm. one, they forge Thor's hammer, as well as Odinspear Gungnir, the ship uh, Skidbladnir, and the magical ring Draupnir, and a new head of hair for Thor's wife Sif, all yep. forged from metal. That's that's some good metalsmithing right there. It almost suggests that in this culture, blacksmithing is a central feature of their lives. It yes, it does, and it also suggests again that there's a kind of mysticism to it, right? That the yeah. the culture of blacksmithing is a culture that is slightly mysterious to those who don't do it. Yeah, uh, and there's another myth, by the way, about the creation of the necklace of the Brissings, uh, which was forged for Freya by a group of dwarves. Now, that's a slightly more R-rated myth. And uh, after our episode on Volsathauter last time, I think we should probably just skip over that one. Well, what? <laughs> the people love the R-rated ones. Oh, jeez. Well, let's just say that it's a very good necklace and that Freya pays a significant price for it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, now, that's not a complete answer, Bjorn. But as I said, there's a lot more to tell about smithing than we can answer here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm committing to a saga brief that, Shut up, Andy. I mean it. <laughs> I was going to say. That, that, I was that, just going to say. I'm committing to a saga brief that will expand sure on this are. stuff and also include the story of the time I actually got to play with a working reproduction of a medieval forge at Lonsa Meadow. Uh-huh. Uh, in the meantime, Bjorn, we'd, uh, we'd love to hear more about the kind of work you do at your forge. And if you like, send us some pictures so that we can put it up on the website. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Uh, all right. I think we're going to have to call it a night because it's after midnight on the East Coast and I am sleepy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you have any questions that we failed to answer, or if you'd like to question the answers we did come up with, we'd love to hear from you. Andy, how do we hear from them? How do you still not know this? I'm the audience surrogate, Andy. I'm Ah. asking for the person listening who desperately wants to know how to reach us. Oh, sure. That person. All right. Well, you can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can join in on the conversation on Twitter where we are at sagathingpod. On Facebook, where we're Saga Thing Podcast, or you can check out our WordPress blog, which is www.sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, or look for us on Instagram, 
where we're Sagathing Pod. I uh, should be a little bit more active there uh, now that I am finished moving into my, well, mostly finished moving into my house. <laughs> <laughs> Look there soon for pictures from Baron's Forge. Yes. Uh, <laughs> or you can just drop a note in the next burial mound you raid. Uh, we won't actually be able to read it, but it'll amuse whoever's living in there. Okay, so we will be back soon, uh, two weeks or so, with the continuing adventures of Horv and his crew. Till then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Yeah, it's it's been a tick, hasn't it? Uh, speaking of ticks, I have so many ticks in my new backyard. It's unreal. <laughs> Do you? I've picked yeah. a few off my dogs this spring, but it hasn't been too terrible yet. There's so many. I we we had like a dinner outside, like on the patio the other night. Yeah. And the next morning, I woke up and found ticks on me. How many? Two. But okay. I, I didn't want to wake up and find that. <laughs> so you're just taking advantage of the plural to make it sound more epic than it was. Well, oh well. Understood. Let me tell you where they were. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> All right, you can't. I don't think it counts if you give yourself a noser. I don't. Th- <laughs> uh, it's in my keyboard. Damn it. Mm. Yeah, you don't you don't get you don't get a score for that one. That's all you. Oh, it's too bad. Hang on. I got to just shake my keyboard out here. Absolutely. Go ahead. Uh <laughs> Oh, it's going to be a sticky keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whose damn fault? Oh, man. (sighs)